Friends, it's so great to see you. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Chris. I'm the Church at 6.30 Minister. And it's great to be in your homes tonight as we look at God's Word together. You know, I've been spent the day preaching. And can I just say, when I've been spending the day preaching and I get to 6.30, I'm so glad because it feels like I'm coming home to my people. So it's great to be with you on Zoom tonight. Let's, um, how about I pray as we get started. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we read your word and study your word tonight, that you would transform our hearts so that we would want to live more like Jesus to your glory alone. Amen. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> last week uh, I watched one of my favorite movies that I haven't seen in a while, Schindler's List. It's a bit of a downer, but maybe lockdown got me in the mood. Uh, Schindler's List is the true story of Oscar Schindler, a man who saved 1,200 Jews from uh, during the Holocaust. One of the big questions that this movie asks is, what is a human life worth? And at the climax of the movie, after seeing all the people he saves, it dawns on him. Uh, one human life is worth more than anything he owns. He says, you know, he would have given up tie clips, jewellery, his house, his car, any luxury he had, any freedom he had, he would give it all up just to save one more person. Uh, tonight, I want to ask a similar question. What is the faith of another Christian worth? What is the faith of another Christian worth? Imagine if I told you that for a sum of money, you could guarantee the faith of a Christian. Uh, how much would you be willing to spend? How much time would you be willing to invest? What troubles would you go to? What freedoms would you be willing to give up to ensure the faith of another Christian? Now, on one hand, you and I would agree that there is actually no sum of money you can buy, you can use to buy eternal salvation. Salvation is a freely, is a free gift given to us by God. We are saved by grace. But on the other hand, if there was a value on someone's faith, what is the faith of another Christian worth? That question is at the heart of what we're looking at tonight. Um, Tonight we're continuing our series from uh, Romans chapter 12 to chapter 16. And the issue tonight actually started at the beginning of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles, have a look. Paul says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Uh, in the church at Rome, two groups have emerged what Paul calls the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Now, this doesn't mean that one has more greater faith than the other, but it's rather got to do with conscience and their knowledge, their understanding of the implications of the gospel. You see, they're arguing over disputable matters. Now, if you remember from last week, disputable matters, they're not foundational truths of, um, of the Bible. They're not um, debating the physical resurrection of Jesus or the authority of Scripture. Um, they're not debating unchristian living. You know, they're not debating about sexual ethics or anything like that. Uh, and it's not about preferences. They're not arguing about what color flowers should be at the beginning at the front of church. Um, the disputable matters, William Taylor, a minister from the UK, defines it like this. Slide will come up. 
Disputable matters are secondary issues that have a real biblical right and wrong answer, but one person hasn't seen the implication of the gospel in this area. They're secondary issues, but the implication of the gospel hasn't been seen. That is, uh, we don't have freedom in these issues because there's no right and wrong. No, freedom is the right answer. Freedom is the right answer because of the gospel. And so the issue on the table is our food laws. Um, discussions about whether Christians are free to eat all types of meat and vegetables. But for us, food laws is not an issue, right? Like if I had a bacon sandwich in front of me and I ate it in front of you tonight, you wouldn't be worried that I was eating meat. You wouldn't be worried that I was eating bacon. Uh, I mean, um, look, uh, Dan Upson would probably just be worried that I wasn't sharing it with him. Um, so that's not the issue for us. Probably some of the questions that we might ask would be things like, can Christians get tattoos? Should people put their hands in the air when they sing? Uh, what is the right way to baptize someone? Now, I realize I probably just opened a whole can of worms with those questions. Don't worry, we have Q&A later, so feel free to grill me via text message on any of those. But why is this issue so important? Like, why does it matter if I have a bacon sandwich or not in front of my Christian brother? Well, have a look at verse 20. Verse 20, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. We live in a world that prides the strong and pities the weak. It's our human nature to want to be right. And we deserve, we think that we deserve to always be right. And the danger is that for the sake of being right, we double down on our freedoms that we have in the gospel. We believe that we practice them in front of others. And for those who don't agree, we can cause them harm. We can cause them to stumble. And if we persuade them to participate, we might even cause someone to sin against their own conscience. And so verse 20, this can destroy the work of God. The warning from tonight's passage is that by flaunting our freedoms in front of people, or even coercing them to sin against their conscience can result in them walking away from Jesus. So what does Paul do? Well, he says, next point, don't trip up, build up. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look at verse 13 with me. Chapter 14, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind to not put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Like I said before, Paul is speaking about food. So verse 14, nothing, no food is unclean in itself. Uh, in Mark 7, Jesus teaches this exact thing, that all food is clean. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision and he that declares to him that all food is clean. This is completely in line with what the New Testament says. But Paul, Paul doesn't want to trip up his brothers in Christ. 
He doesn't want to hinder their spiritual growth. He doesn't want them to sin against their own conscience. So Paul, now get the logic. So Paul calls all food clean, but he's okay with someone else calling it unclean. Now that's a pretty big thing to do, right? I mean, we're filled with all these questions. Is Paul giving in to pressure from other people? Is Paul getting watery about his biblical convictions? Is Paul just taking, you know, is seeking unity for unity's sake and not dealing with the issues at hand? Well, the answer is no. Why? Because of the kingdom. Have a look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. This is the principle. The kingdom of God at the heart of the passage. Now, the kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Where is God's rule and realm expressed? Well, it's in the people. It's in the people who submit to God and live with Jesus as their king. And the kingdom of God is not a subject of reality. It's not a feeling. Being in the kingdom is not a feeling of righteousness and a feeling of peace and joy. It's not a warm, fuzzy hug. The kingdom of God is an objective reality. where What God does to us and in us and through us by his son. Uh, Romans 5, chapter 1. So Romans 5, verse 1 puts it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified, that's declared righteous, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our, faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we enter the kingdom of God? We enter by being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus. We enter by having peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's within that right relationship with God, it's within that righteousness and that peace that we have joy. Joy is not a veiled kind of thin veneer of happiness that we place over our lives. Joy is a deep and lasting satisfaction given to us by God because of our eternal hope, because of our future uh, kind of what Nigel was talking about a little bit earlier. We can have that joy today because of our eternal hope in the future. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God shows us the character of, of the people in the kingdom. The character of God shows us the, sorry, the kingdom of God shows us the character of those in the kingdom. So as people in the kingdom... We seek to live lives of righteousness. We obey God. Um, we seek to live lives of peace. Peace with God and peace with other people. And we seek after joy. Not the fleeting joy that we find in this temporal earthly realm, but the joy that God gives us through Jesus. And this is really important. Because the kingdom of God, and this is how why it matters, teaches us what really matters in the Christian life. Someone's relationship with God and their spiritual growth is the thing that matters. That's because um, uh, the kingdom of God is not about food and drink. It's not about keeping laws and doing the right thing. Uh, the kingdom of God 
is about being made right with God through Jesus, having peace with him and seeking peace with other people, which means the kingdom of God, as we seek peace with other people, calls us to build others up, not to trip them up, but build them up. Have a look at verse 19 with me. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Uh, mutual edification is just a fancy word for building someone up in Christ. It's to encourage them to keep knowing and loving and serving the Lord Jesus and growing in their relationship with God. So Paul, instead of putting an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister, he says, well, we are to make every effort to build one another up so that they have peace with God and we have peace with each other. How do we do that? Well, like I said before, the world prides the strong and pities the weak. The world says that to make the weak strong, you need to um, coerce them. You need to convince them. You need to persuade them. You need to force them to live by your rules so they will go from weak to strong. But the kingdom of God is completely the other way around. Paul doesn't say that the weak need to, sorry, that the strong need to teach the weak. Paul doesn't say that he needs to, the strong needs to convince them to change their mind or their behavior or even go against their conscience. Paul instructs the stronger to build them up by giving up. Have a look at verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fail. We build up weaker brothers and sisters by giving up our freedoms that Christ has won for us. <clears throat> um, and that's a hard thing to do. That's not easy. And so uh, one of the great things uh, that God has given us is the example of Jesus to help us to bear with others, which is our next point. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 1 with me. Uh, Paul says, We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. <clears throat> Paul uses strong language to talk to the strong in faith. Uh, to say that we ought to bear with others is to say that we have an obligation. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Romans 13. We have an obligation to love. Uh, and this is the same. This is the same obligation. An obligation to love by bearing with the failings of the weak. Uh, Paul is doing this really nice play on words there. That is, he's saying um, uh, the strong is to bear up under the weak to strengthen them. That is, they bear up under, shouldering their burdens by giving up their freedoms and not pleasing themselves. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. Have a look at verse 3 with me. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. We see Jesus bearing the failings in the weak in the Gospels. Um, and one of the, one of the clearest pictures of that is in Luke chapter 5. It'll come up on the screen. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. 
But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong to their sect complain to his disciples, Why do you eat meat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Eastern cultures, to share a meal with someone was to acknowledge them, to approve of them. It's a picture of fellowship, of unity, of identifying with them. And that's why the religious leaders are so upset in Luke chapter 5. How could this holy religious teacher, who speaks about the holy God and the kingdom of God, identify with people who are so sinful, so weak? Jesus shares a meal with them. He identifies with them. He acknowledges acknowledges them. He bears their weaknesses and failings. Why? To call sinners to repentance. So they may hear about the kingdom of God, repent and believe. You see, Jesus, when he looks at the crowd of Pharisees, tax collectors and sinners, he doesn't see people. He sees souls that will stand before a holy God in judgment one day. And so um, because he sees them in, uh, because he sees souls needing to be saved, he gives of himself. He sacrifices himself. He bears the failings of the weak. And he has a meal with these people. This little picture, it's like a microcosm of the bigger picture of Jesus going to the cross. That is, Jesus on going to the cross, and as he dies on the cross for our sin, bears our failings and our weaknesses. He gives up of himself. He sacrifices himself. He sacrifices the things that please him so that he could die in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. John 15 verse 13, Jesus said this, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So in the example of Jesus, we see how the strong are to love the weak. How the strong are to build up the weak. How the strong are to bear with the failings of the weak by giving up our own freedoms so they may grow in the knowledge, love and service of God. Remember Oscar Schindler? The big question in the movie of Schindler's List was, what is the value of a human life worth? And at the end of the movie, at the great climax, he sees all the people that have been saved and he says, they're worth more than tie clips, than jewellery, than houses, than cars, than, than any of my luxuries and any of my freedoms. And I would be willing to give them up to save one more person. So can I ask to you, friends, what is the value of someone else's faith in Jesus? Are they valuable enough for you to give up your freedoms, to give up your rights, to be thought of as wrong so that they would not stumble, so that they would not sin against their conscience, so that they may continue to grow in faith, in knowledge and love of God? So when we have a disagreement over a disputable matter, what do we do? Well, we don't try, we, 
Well, we don't put a stumbling block in their way. No. We let the kingdom of God change our perspective. We focus on what matters most. That is their relationship with God and their spiritual growth. And following the example of Jesus, we give up our own freedoms so that they may grow in knowledge and love of God. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean we give up our convictions. No, Um, we see in the example of Paul that he never gives up his convictions. He never says food is, is unclean. No, he clearly says food is clean. But he's willing to give up that freedom out of love for another brother. It reminds me of a mate called Corey. Corey grew up in an exclusive family church. They met every Saturday in suits and head coverings, men on the right and women on the left. They spent all Saturday being told the things that they need to do to be made right with God and the things that they don't do to be made right with God. He grew up in this church and uh, in his 20s, Corey got invited to a mate's church. And for the first time, he heard about the grace of God and he puts his faith in Jesus. But Corey's in a dilemma because Corey has just got this newfound faith in Jesus and is saved by the grace of God. But Corey can't go back to that church because they don't wear suits. They don't wear head coverings. The men don't sit on the right and the women don't sit on the left. So what's Corey to do? Well, something really beautiful happened. A bunch of men in that church got together and they chatted and they prayed. And they decided that they would be willing to give up some of the freedoms that they have in the gospel for the sake of their brother, Corey. And so the men started wearing suits to church. Some of the women even wore head coverings. Some of the men, uh, the men even started sitting on the right and the women on the left so that Corey could hear more about Jesus and grow in his faith so that when the time comes, he could realize that these are actually freedoms in Christ that he has and he doesn't need to do them anymore. Something really, something even more beautiful than happened than that, because Corey told his family about this. And so Corey's family started coming to church and they heard about the grace of Jesus and they got saved. And then their cousins started coming to church and they heard about the grace of Jesus and they got saved. Over about five years, 20 to 30 people in his white family got saved through that church because they were willing to give up the freedoms that they had in the gospel for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ. Which kind of comes to our last point. Um, Putting God's kingdom first means putting people first. Now, bacon and sandwiches, you know, that's a bit niche for us. So how does this apply? Well, the kingdom of God gives us higher principles than this world to live by. It means having a devotion to one another. It means following the selfless example of Jesus Christ. It means being careful to live out with our freedoms and not flaunt them in front of other Christians or discourage them, to not cause them to sin against their conscience or compromise their faith. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't talk about the issues. No, we hold our convictions and we discuss them and we share them and we teach about them. But it does mean that in things like growth group, 
We need to make sure that we're listening to our brothers and sisters when we disagree with them. It means that we need to watch our behaviour um, as we invite people over for hospitality. It means that we may need to give up some of these freedoms as we come to church. Uh, I was really challenged this week to think about um, grandfathers and fathers in the faith. You know, every church has grandfathers and fathers in the faith. I was really challenged this week to think about how I talk about the freedoms I have in Christ and how that affects people of an older generation who are Christians. Um, <clears throat> because I could easily talk about things like tattoos or things that we have freedom in the gospel to do, um, but they may have serious issues with. Um, just before I finish, I thought I'd just take one more moment just to speak to us as a church family. Uh, I haven't included this in my previous talks. Uh, at 6.30, we have the blessing of welcoming lots and lots of people to church. There's always new people at church. And there's always new people from Sydney or other parts of the country who come to us. And if we are to be a church that welcomes people well, uh, and also that reaches out to the lost with the gospel, there are times where we will need to give up our freedoms so that other people can sit under God's word, so other people can hear the gospel and grow in their faith. So this may mean that we have people in our church at 6.30 who won't agree with everything that we say comes from the Bible. And we need to work hard at loving them, at listening to them, and walking with them with our hearts open and our Bibles open as well. Not putting stumbling blocks or obstacles in their way, but sharing the truth of Jesus with them and helping them to grow in their faith so that we may have peace and unity as a congregation and so many more people may hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. To finish with, I thought I'd pray verses 5 and 6 in chapter 15. Paul finishes this section with a prayer, and I think that's a good prayer for us. So um, uh, please pray with me. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.